0: Nature's Archive Podcast, a jumpstart nature production.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Hawk and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative nature advocates and naturalists on the planet. If you have a fascination with nature and ecology, this podcast is for you. I create this podcast as a personal passion and it's my desire to turn it into something even bigger. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. Finally, a deep dive into the fungi kingdom. It took me 36 episodes, but we're finally here thanks to fungi expert Damon Tai. Damon is a skilled naturalist, photographer, science communicator, biotech educator, and a prolific iNaturalist contributor. He has a biology and chemistry degree from St. Mary's College and has years of professional experience in genomics and DNA sequencing, including with the Human Genome Project at the National Lab's Joint Genome Institute. Damon is also a core member of the California Center for Natural History. In today's episode, we attempt to cover the enormous topic of fungi. Damon describes the basics of fungi, what they are, and how they reproduce. Damon covers the three primary lifestyles that fungi take on sacrophytic, which like to eat dead stuff; parasitic, which like to eat something else that's alive; and mycorrhizal, where they team up with something, often a plant, to get food. We spend time discussing fungi and mushrooms that one might encounter in the field or their own backyard, seasonality of their occurrence, how to read the landscape to find mushrooms, and how to identify them. Damon covers some common mushroom myths as well, and we also discuss whether it's okay to pick mushrooms for identification or general foraging purposes. Damon also tells us about some fascinating mushroom behaviors, such as how the chicken of the woods mushrooms tend to fruit in anticipation of rain, and the story of the notorious death cap mushroom. We wrap up with a good discussion of the convergence of DNA sequencing technology in citizen science. DNA sequencing is now achievable in a home setting at a relatively inexpensive cost, and a community of citizen scientists are driving new discoveries through this technology. You can find Damon on Instagram and iNaturalist as Damon Tai, spelled T-I-G-H-E, and I highly recommend that you follow both of those. And definitely be sure to check out the show notes. Throughout the episode, Damon mentioned a bunch of different species, and I've included pictures of several. Damon also provided links to a bunch of videos and resources on fungal DNA barcoding. I've included all of those in the show notes as well. So without further delay, Damon Tai. Damon, thank you for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: I've been following your work for quite a while on iNaturalist and Instagram, and I'm definitely excited to have you here. And you seem to have so many naturalist interests that, you know, I can see for some people it might be difficult to pick a topic to focus with you on. But for today, I'm thinking fungi is going to be the topic of choice.
0: One guy's a great one. It's definitely the space I found myself in the most over the last couple years. Um, And it's mainly because it was something I really knew nothing about, I would say, up until about 10 years ago. And then kind of hit a tip of an ice where I was just like, wow, there's so much to learn here. And I've just gone on and on. And just like most fields, the deeper in you get, the more you realize you don't know. And sometimes that just keeps pulling you in deeper.
1: And I'll tell you what, I'm at that point where I really know hardly anything about it. So hopefully... You can start to put me on the right path today. I hope so. Before we jump into the main topic, I'd like to hear where did you grow up and how did you get interested in nature in the first place?
0: Yep. Uh, I grew up in Clown Falls, Oregon, which is just at the California-Oregon border. And so it's a pretty rural portion of Oregon. And so it's pretty much surrounded by forests. But then around first grade, we moved down to Calaveras County in California. And I know when most people They're not from California. They stay just here any place in California. And they're like, oh, you must be by the beach and by Redwoods and Baywatch. And it's actually, I didn't see the ocean really until I was probably 14 or 15. I mean, it was a really rural portion of California. We had one stoplight in the entire county, which meant that if I went outside the front door to go do stuff, I was pretty much in nature. We're very close to it. So kind of got those leanings really early on just because that's the environment around me. And then I was lucky that my parents, for the most part, were... Not naturalist, but had a fascination with at least plants and birds. And so I picked up a lot through hikes with them and even some backpacking trips with my whole family early on.
1: So it sounds like through continuous exposure, you developed this interest in nature. Were there any seminal moments that stand out?
0: Probably one of the most seminal moments was a backpacking trip to the Sally Keys Lakes in the Sierra Nevada with my grandpa, my uncle and my mom. And I think I was maybe in... Third grade or fourth grade. And it was horrible. I hated it. <laughs> but it was seminal because I think most of the frustration was mainly due to family dynamics and not necessarily the setting. And so reflecting back, like so those are some of the strongest memories I have of kind of the natural world to some degree, because I think there was just so much emotion built up in that. And then we have all these family stories of this short period of time, these three days in the mountains because all we saw, all these different things. There was a black bear that had tracked me for a while when I was up in front of my mom. She's like, I was hiking for a while and I found your footprints. She's like, okay. So he's up in front of me. And then she's like, and about 10 feet later, I realized that were black bear tracks right over your footprints. And so we had a whole bunch of experiences like that over those three days. And so it's that, I don't know, it made nature feel more wild and more interesting to me through just like all of those kind of dynamics, the family dynamic and just what we saw out there.
1: Yeah. That, that black bear story. That's, (laughs) that's quite the story too.
0: Yeah. And I had no clue what was behind me. I guess it wandered off after a while. My mom's at some point, like the track just veered out into the meadow and you just kept going and she was just like, whew, big sigh of relief as a parent. that. It's okay.
1: Yeah, hopefully, it was just the black bear deciding, ah, it's just a human. I don't really care too much about humans. So go on my day. Yeah. (laughs) And then proceeding from there, how about academic background?
0: So, academic background growing up in Calvary County, there weren't a whole lot of opportunities as far as work goes. As high school, you're looking around going, wow, what am I going to do here? There's working for a dying lumber industry, working at a cement factory working at the hospital or basically working in education. And so those are the options. And of all those, medicine seems the most interesting. so I'll kind of, because I already have an interest in sciences and this is like applied science. So I started going that direction academically, but then through internships and things like that, I realized I didn't like clinical settings. And so I started looking around for what other things could I be doing with applied sciences? I ended up in biological research, but mainly on cell and molecular side of stuff. So I ended up going college, more or less graduating with a degree focused in molecular biology, and then ended up in a career in DNA sequencing within the national labs. And then have moved on to just some biotech stuff, but on the side, always keeping alive all these naturalist interests.
1: Hopefully we'll have plenty of time to get into this topic, but you've been able to converge those areas of interest, it seems, with your knowledge in, in genetics and then your naturalist interests.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And those were two things I've been, I would have never guessed 20 years ago would have ever converged, but we're definitely at a time where these two disciplines are really paralleling each other and working back and forth very quickly right now, which is fantastic.
1: Exactly. So we'll work our way to that topic throughout the course of the conversation. Let's jump in then to, to fungi. So how is it then that you got interested in fungi?
0: So I got interested in fungi partly due to a really long backpacking trip. So I did the John Muir Trail the summer after I graduated college. And in, prior to that, the longest backpacking trip I'd ever done, I think, was three days. So you can imagine the preparation difference for three days versus something that usually takes somewhere between 14 and 21 is very different. I thought I did all of my calculations, but I did not. And so at some point during this trip, we ran out of food. Um, and I very much so remember seeing mushrooms on the trail during those hungry days and wondering, I know people eat these organisms, but I know nothing about them. And I've heard some are poisonous. I guess, oh man, I wish I knew. And so when I got back from the trail, I made a, a declaration. I'm going to, I'm going to figure these out. So that winter I started looking at mushrooms really for the first time. And at first it was edibility, but then within a season, just because as soon as I started going out and looking, I started seeing this huge diversity and especially in California They're equivalent to winter flowers. There is this huge diversity of what they can look like, colors and things like that. And they perfectly match the season where I had nothing else going on. And I just completely fell head over heels for them. And that's how I ended up in mycology.
1: Hey, nature enthusiast. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. And I think most people listening have a pretty good sense of at least some types of fungi. But I'd love to hear in in your own words, what is a fungi? How do you classify a fungi?
0: Yeah, so fungi is like when people talk about, I'm interested in mycology and stuff like that, usually when you talk to a general person, what they're talking about is like, I'm interested in the fungi that I can see because the majority of stuff that we can actually go on a walk and observe is just a, a pretty small slice of that kingdom. A lot of that kingdom is bust out the microscope, bust out the molecular tools in order to see that it's there. But even within that, the that slice of that kingdom, like the psilomycetes, what usually produce the mushrooms people think about, and the ascomycetes, these ones that, that produce kind of cup fungi. Things like morels are ascomycetes, or like big folded up cups. It's still a huge diversity within that. And so if we think about the classification of those, sort of spent like most, I would say, of like my community science time is probably with things that produce fruiting bodies that we can go see in the, in the field. And for the most part, those divisions, um, get kind of sliced up based upon like a handful of features within the fruiting bodies, which is interesting because if we think about the life cycle of these organisms, the fruiting body is actually just a really small slice of that, but that's where a lot of our descriptions and understanding of, being you know, the a species comes from is by just looking at the fruiting body, which, for anybody that's, you know, not familiar with mycology, this would be analogous to if we only classified, say, angiosperms only on looking at their fruit and said, you know, oh, the fruit only has this color this shape, so we're going to classify these together. It works for the most part, but then that's one of those things when we get into the molecular biology in a bit that as, we, as that tool's kind of come online, it's allowed us to see that some of these things that produce a phenotype aren't always represented or don't always match when you look at the molecular data, which is something that's still unfolding, I would say, right now. And it's been really evolving the way that we look at fungal taxonomy. The big bins are still staying there, but things are definitely still getting arranged all the time.
1: That's really interesting, and there's a lot of questions that I would like to try to ask, but I think we need to get in maybe to the life cycle a little bit more to fill out this baseline. So can you tell me about the life cycle of fungi and those that produce mushrooms in particular?
0: Yeah, I think that would be uh, really helpful to help get a, a good look at what's going on. So if we think about mushroom producing fungi, for the most part, Let's start at this portion of life cycle where we've got a spore that's out there in the world, that's floating around and it lands in some place that is, it's got the right conditions for it to germinate. And so a spore for the most part has one copy of the genome. At this point, it'll germinate and it will start to more or less grow out small strands. You have cells attaching to cells into these threads that are working their way through a substrate. Now, that single spore is producing what we call hyphae at this point. This hyphae can find other hyphae. So other spores that have germinated, have sprouted, have started growing out. And when these find each other, they can more or less fuse. And this will produce what we call mycelium. And mycelium is really what most of the mushroom-producing fungi spend probably most of their life cycle in. This mycelium is growing through substrates, it's expanding the organism greatly, and then at a certain time, due to different factors, it will decide that it is time to produce a fruiting body, i.e. the mushroom, in order to basically go through fungal sex more or less and produce more spores to then get itself out there. And this can happen for a number of reasons. It can be due to the substrate being completely run through. It can be seasonal effects like moisture and temperature and things like that. But the cells that are being interwoven up into the fruiting body, for the most part, you still don't have joining of those two different individuals until you get to the basidia cells. And so if we're looking at like a guild mushroom this would be happening in the gills. And so in there, you actually have the transfer of genetic material and then the formation of the spores off of that cell body. And then once again, you're now down to one copy of the genome in each of those spores, and they go out into the world. And those spores can go out into the world in a whole host of different ways. So fungi have figured out many different ways to use vectors to move their spores around. That's everything from mammals to insects to wind, a whole host of things, but we can get into some of those a little bit later, I think.
1: What does it take for a spore to germinate?
0: It really depends upon the species, but in general, so if I'm looking at like in California where I live, a lot of times it's the right moisture and the right signals that it's got the substrate it likes around it. So for some fungi, it might be, hey, I've landed on a piece of already decaying oak, and this is my preferred habitat and it's moist out, okay, I'm going to germinate and start growing into this substrate. And for other ones, it might be that they pass through a digestive system first and got chemically processed, end up in a pile of poop someplace and then get moisture on top of it and go, ah, now I'm where I want to be, now I'll start growing. So just how plants, right, have all of these different factors that may be involved depending upon their little ecological niche, Fungi are very similar as far as their spores
1: go. Yeah, that's interesting. It is very similar. There are obviously certain plant seeds that have to be—they have to go through a digestive system in order for them to germinate. So it's, it's interesting to hear it's similar for for fungi spores. And you talked about this process where the spore germinates and it starts to send out little strands that eventually. Fuse, and I admit you lost me a little bit with that, is that with another spore who also germinated? And is that necessary to then form the fruiting body or can a singular spore grow and do it on its own?
0: So for most mushrooms, they're going to have to find another hyphae that germinated from a different spore in order to be able to produce a fruiting body. Because you're going to need two different individuals, basically two different genomes there in order to ultimately go through fungal sex and produce another set of spores. But this gets really complicated with some fungi because they have to find specific mating partners. And so some fungi can just be more or less, You you think about it as plus and minus, or male, female, if you want to drive it that way. And they like find that opposite one and go, okay, I can mate with you. But it's not always clear cut like that. Like one fungus, schizophyllum commune, the split gill fungus, we think, has somewhere on the order of 22,000 mating types. Um, and so there's a wide variety of you know strains. that could find one and go, okay, I'm okay mating with you, or nope, I'm not compatible with you, in order to ultimately produce fruiting bodies.
1: Wow, so with 22,000 types then, is it understood what combinations work? <sighs> I'm guessing no. <laughs>
0: Not fully, there's definitely people working on it. It's really head scratching and I think it also makes it really complicated, especially when you talk about species concepts sometimes because you have so many mating types that what level of genetic diversity say within the genome, is this just a different strain, a different mating type or a different species? And this is one of those fungi that when you look at like species biogeography maps of it, it's basically everywhere in the world and is that because we don't know how to delineate or we don't have a good species concept for it? Or is it just that dispersed? It's hard to say.
1: Yeah, there's so much to learn. And you're right. The, the species concept is flawed anyway, in a way. like, mm-hmm. uh, But we have to have it because otherwise, how do we have a common language to talk about these things?
0: Yeah, it's a useful binning process for now until somebody comes up with something better. But it's going to be a while before we get to something better, I think.
1: So you alluded to some of the factors that might lead to seasonality, like the right moisture, the right temperature, things like that. Can you talk a little bit more about seasonality of fungi and how it varies by species?
0: Let me do this. Let me do a wide view, like a global view, and then I'm going to go right into my neighborhood, more or less like Oakland, and we'll talk about specific species to delineate how some of these have very different kinds of seasonality effects. So I am personally always jealous when I talk to people on the East coast of the United States or people in Japan Korea, because the height of their mushroom season is their summers. And that's because things aren't freezing. They've got plenty of rain, plenty of moisture. And the reason I'm mainly jealous is because they have really long days where out on the West coast of North America, peak kind of fruiting season for fungi is usually our winters. And it Corresponds with our shortest days. So if you're out there trying to have a really long walk and see a whole bunch of stuff, you're usually going to find yourself in the dark by the end of the walk. And so fungi usually fungi fruiting, sorry, is usually correlating where you have the highest moisture for an area and also not freezing temperatures. So those are two big generalities. So if I look closer though, where I'm at in Oakland, California individual species will more or less decide to fruit anywhere before when we get our first rain all the way out to months after we get our normal kind of last rains. So the classic one in the San Francisco Bay Area that shows up before the rainy season is commonly called the chicken of the woods mushroom. Lateroporus, and we have two of them in California, Gilbert sonii, which only likes hardwoods, and then lateroporus conifercola, which only likes conifers. So They look really similar, so it's actually nice that they seem to have this very specific desire for different hosts, so it makes it easy for us in the field to delineate them. But they show up all the time, almost on a regular schedule, about a month before we could ever expect rain, which is mind-blowing because this is a mushroom that is usually breaking down a dead tree stump. Sometimes you'll find them on trees that are on their way out. But usually you'll find them on stumps. And the reason I think this is really interesting is because I could see a mushroom picking up signals from a plant that they're working with in a mycorrhizal kind of symbiotic relationship and going, oh, light's changing at this season. I think all fruit, but these chicken of the woods mushrooms are somehow getting these signals, not through a host plant, but through other factors in the environment and going, oh, I'm in this season now. I'm out of the hot summer and transitioning towards fall, I'm gonna go ahead and start fruiting now. And if you look even in Australia, Australia has some chicken in the woods as well. And theirs does a very similar thing. It'll fruit usually about a month before their rainy season starts, which is kind of wild. We're on the East coast of the United States. It'll fruit right during the middle of their summer rains. So these things have figured out more or less the best time for them to get their fruiting bodies out so they can get their spores out into the environment. In a desirable time, I think for chicken in the woods, it takes a while for these large mushrooms to form because they end up making these huge shelves, And some of these can be easily dinner plate size. And I'm not talking like your classic dinner plate. I'm talking, you're going to a banquet and, you know, it's a server carrying it with both hands type of mushroom. So these can take a while to form sometimes. And so when they hit maturity, maybe at that time is when we start to get moisture. And so those spores are ready right when moisture shows up. Once we get that first kind of deluge of rain in California, we have a number of fungi that will literally pop up the next day and they will be gone usually within a couple of days. So these are a lot of the cuprinopsis mushrooms. It's one of the classically known ones is the, the hair's foot. And you'll see this in mulch all the time. They call it a hair's foot because we look at the really young one. It's gray and fuzzy, and it looks like those old keychains from the 80s that people have. And they will bud really quickly. They'll come up, they'll drop their spores and can melt away within a day. But that first grain also usually initiates a lot of our mycorrhizal species. And so these are species that live in association, usually with a tree, or most of the ones people are focused on. And a lot of these will pop up within the next week. And this is because they're working with that host, they can see season changes taking place based on the amount of light the plant is processing and the amount of sugars are probably getting kicked to them. And they'll actually start to form these hyphal knots underground before we even get the rain. These little hyphal knots are like a, a storage of a bunch of mycelium. So that way as soon as that rain hits, they can quickly erupt out and produce a really big fruiting body really quickly. So these are things like king boletes um, and some of the other large kind of boletes that people are interested in eating. And then we've got a handful of mushrooms that will show up after the rains and start to slow down. So the large chanterelle in California, Californicus, the one that associates just the coast live oak, which is probably one of the largest chanterelles in the world. It's just a really slow growing mushroom. So a lot of times like rain season hits and it's still pushing up and it can sometimes take a month or more to form. So sometimes you'll already be out of the rainy season and the chanterelles are still coming up. So we've got a lot of ones that pick different points of the season of when to pop. For California, though, at least the Bay Area, usually peak of season is somewhere between December and January, as far as when the biggest diversity of mushrooms are up.
1: Yeah, very different from, say, if you're in Michigan <laughs> or, or somewhere back <laughs> yeah. east. Yeah. And in fact, I'm thinking about the forecast here. We're, we're uh, supposed to get pretty good rain, only the second big rain of our rainy season here in the Bay Area. And then it's supposed to, down at least where I live, it's going to get very cold, maybe some upper 20s. So from what you're saying, that could, that could stunt the, the fungal development for a while.
0: It could stunt some fungal development. So some things like the, the warm and wet, some things actually like the cold and wet. So some of the boetes, like the king boetes, boetes edulis, it likes it when it's warm and wet. And so that's why when that first rain happens, they start fruiting really quickly. And then once we get to the cold storms, like what we'll get right now probably, it'll more or less put a kibosh on them. They'll be like, okay, I'm done, warm weather's over, it's wet, great, I'm done. But then there's some of these other mushrooms that it actually needs to drop beneath a certain temperature in California and on the kind of Pacific Northwest before they decide to trigger and fruit. And so we're now moving our way into, I would say, classically would be like midwinter mushrooms in California. And so we'll see things like the yellowfoot chanterelle coming up, the black trumpets, things like this that want that little bit of a cold snap before they actually start to fruit.
1: So some of the names that you've mentioned, this is obviously it's audio and uh, the yeah. names are, are pretty evocative. So uh, what I'll try to do is in the show notes, I'll include uh, a few photos of some of the species that you're talking about so that uh, people can take a look and, and see exactly why they're named the way they are.
0: Yeah. I'm using some of the common names here because I think it's a little bit easier to then imagine what they look like. We're going give you the scientific name. Unless you're really well-versed in Latin and are sitting there deciphering this as you're listening to it, it's probably not as visually stunning for you. And also... A lot of our taxonomy is just continuing to evolve. And so, ironically, some of the common names have had a longer foothold, I would say, than the Latin names in California.
1: Okay. I I wanted to also back up. There's so many interesting little side discussions we could have here, so I'll have to really be careful with time. I don't want to monopolize your whole (laughs) evening. But back to the reproductive aspect and just the mind-blowing number of spores that you need to have to allow for for two of these spores to connect in some way i've, I've heard i don't know if you'll know this offhand but i've heard some anecdotes in the past about like every breath we take there's some number of of spores that we're breathing in there's just that many fungal spores in the air all the time do you have any insights
0: i don't have any interesting stats off the top of my head but i definitely have anecdotal evidence of how ubiquitous they are so i work i work in microbiology a lot and as a it- constant battle anytime you were doing any sort of lab work to make sure you don't end up with fungal spores just because they are everywhere so if i took like a plate of auger where we grow a lot of like microbial stuff on and i just open that plate up open a petri dish up to the air i did that in my house for more than five seconds and I close it back up and I let it sit for a week, let things grow. I guarantee you there's at least 30 to 40 spores that have landed on there and will start germinating. They are just ubiquitous, just everywhere. And if you've ever seen like a mushroom drop spores, if you've ever done a spore print at home, what a spore print is if you take one of the caps for a mushroom, you sever off the stem, and then put the cap with the gills down onto a piece of paper and let it sit overnight there's literally just all of those spores will fall out and pile up to where you've got these piles of them that you can see the next day. And there's millions upon millions of them there. Hmm. And if you think about the number of mushrooms in the forests and around you all the time, and that all of them are doing this and they're relatively small cells, they just get picked up by the wind and spread everywhere. And so they are just everywhere all the time.
1: Okay. Jumping in here, post-production, I had to look this up and I found a couple of sources One says that on average, there are 1,000 to 10,000 fungal spores in every cubic meter of air. So a person breathes in between 10,000 and 20,000 liters of air every day, and that would contain between one and 10 spores per breath. Another source shows a much bigger variance where they claim, this is from Ars Technica, and I'll link to both of these, that humans inhale somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 billion mold spores on an average day, and it can be even higher after very wet conditions. So then that allows them to find their very specialized habitats that they require. I guess they don't all require very specialized habitats, but some do. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? Are there, I assume there are obligate relationships that certain fungi have. You talked a little bit about the chicken of the woods that are conifer specific. So is there a way to wrap our heads around those sorts of relationships that that fungi have?
0: Yeah, so I usually like to think about fungi as kind of their trophic sources or their, their lifestyle choices as far as how do I get food from the, from the environment. And I usually break them down into three majors. There's those that are saprophytic that are mainly eating dead stuff. And these are the ones that like, you know, if you went through regular biology courses, it's primarily the ones that we were talked about when we talked about kingdom fungi. And there's the other ones, which are the mycorrhizids. These are one found a way to make a relationship with a plant where the plant's treating them sugar for the fungi, more or less scavenging micronutrients and a lot of times also water in this kind of relationship. And then the last one is these kind of parasitic relationships where you've got a fungus that's actually going after a living organism. And these can be highly specialized. So, like in the saprophytic fungi around where I'm at, we've got ones that will differentiate not only between just hardwoods and conifers, like we were talking about with the chicken of the woods, but we'll differentiate even further. Like I only like this species of wood to grow on. And so some of the like, was it Panis, which is this really cocautus, this purpley, really leathery feeling mushroom around here. I only find it on coast live oak. And a lot of these fungi will seem to have very specific substrates that they grow on, even just the saprophytic ones. then when you talk about the mycorrhizal ones, It's interesting because you've got a lot of them that have become very good generalists, which means they can work with a number of different tree species, but then there's a handful that will pick only one or two tree species that they'll work with, and that's it. And we really see that within the urban interface too, because we have a lot of ornamental plants that came in, right, that were not from here. And sometimes they will pick up our natives, our native mycorrhizals will make their way onto those trees. So like Atlas cedar or something planted all over the Bay Area. And it's actually one of the trees that picks up really well are native bolets. And so we'll see boletus edulis end up on there. We'll see boletus barousii end up in all, end up there. And so some of these can be very gregarious as far as who they choose to play with mycorrhizaline. And that's actually led to some of the most notorious mushrooms in California, which are the death caps. The death cap is not a native mushroom to California, but came here on what we think is probably rootstock from Quercus suber, the cork oak from europe and that cork oak is close enoughly related to our coastal live oak that this mushroom has easily made the jump and it's now all over the west coast and we're seeing it learn quote unquote learn to have associations with other trees too in california not just coast live oak now we'll find it on other oaks we found it on other hardwoods now and so it's really interesting you can see some of these can be very gregarious mycorrhizals and others can be I only have this one or two tree species that I want to work with.
1: So you referred to that one as notorious. What makes it so notorious?
0: The notorious thing about phalloides is if you ever hear about mushroom poisoning in California, it's predominantly the one that is causing these poisonings. And that's mainly because it's a really large, good-looking mushroom, and people will harvest it thinking that it's something edible. Um, and unfortunately, also from the people that have been poisoned and have survived, it also tastes really good. It doesn't give you any indication oh, no. right away. It's something you don't want to be eating. And it unfortunately has a very slow onset as far as the pathology of it goes. And so it has a compound, alpha amanita toxin, that stops RNA polymerase 2 from working. And from a biology point of view, you're basically, you've got DNA, it goes to RNA, and then goes to your proteins. And the proteins gonna make up your cells and everything that's functioning. What this toxin does is it shuts down the ability to take that DNA information and translate it into RNA. So all of a sudden, all of your cells that have this toxin can more or less no longer make proteins. And so everything just starts shutting down. And you really don't start seeing symptoms usually until about 6 to 24 hours after, which then it's hard to, say, purge a person's stomach of them and so this is why it's, it's a really kind of deadly mushroom in that regard. Hmm. But at the same time, toxins are a great source for us to learn about biology. So a lot of these toxins that we find in Amanita colloides are actually ones that are exploited for us to actually figure out how cell biology works. So alpha-amanita toxin has really allowed us to figure out how RNA polymerase 2 works. Uh, They have a whole other class of toxins in this mushroom known as phallotoxins that stop your cells from being able to divide, which has allowed us to study those mechanisms. And so I know when people hear toxins, they're like, oh, horrible. And it's like, true. But from a research point of view, a lot of times toxins are some of the best things because it allows us to stop a system so that we can figure out how mechanistically it's working.
1: Top of my mind, I I just did a bio blitz yesterday and had a couple of fungal observations out in the field. A couple of them may be examples of parasitic relationships. So one, there was a disc gall on an oak leaf, and there was a fungus growing on it. And I'm just going to guess, first of all, is that of interest? Should I be reporting something like that in citizen science fields? But does that sound like an example of a parasitic fungal relationship?
0: It, it definitely could be. Um, there are a whole group of fungi that parasitize insects. Um, and so this may be one there. It's not one I am familiar with off the top of my head. And that's why I was like, whoa, what is that? If you would tag me on Atrus, I would love to take a look at it and see if anybody knows what it is. Because fungal parasitism happens in all different kind of portions of the kingdom of life. Fungi will go after fungi. Fungi will go after insects. Fungi will go after plants. Basically, you give them a carbon source and some fungus is going to figure out how to exploit it. Once they go after insects, people tend to be very interested in because they produce really interesting medicinal compounds to manipulate those hosts a lot of times in order to either gain access to them or sometimes even transform the host into a better vector for moving their spores around. So one, for example, is I will butcher the Latin, so we're going to go with the common name the fly death fungus, uh, which is one that I have a very intimate relationship with. I found one of these in point Reyes a couple of years ago, and I brought it back to my home to study and inadvertently spread it to all of the flies in my house. <laughs> and what this fungus does is it attacks the flies by taking over their nervous system. It doesn't kill them right away, but what it does is it makes it so their wings can't be used. And then it gives them summit disease. And so the flies will basically crawl up as high as they can get and they'll lock their mouth parts onto the substrate. And then at that point they decease the fungus emerges and then shoot spores down all over the place. And so that some disease. They basically got them up high, right? So the spores can get a better trajectory and land on other potential flies. And so since about 2014, I'll usually have two or three cycles a year in my apartment where all of the fruit flies all of a sudden get some of disease and start dying left and right around the apartment complex, which is kind of wild. It might
1: be worse than that. You might want to take a look at iNaturalist and see if there's like a blast radius around (laughs) your apartment.
0: (laughs) I've definitely seen it spread from the apartment to then the hallways in the building, but I haven't seen it get outside the <laughs> building yet. But at the same time, you know what, it was a local fungus to start with. And all I've done is help it find new hosts. But there's a lot of groups that, you know, are studying this in the academic spectrum, trying to figure out how does it take over the nervous system and things like this. Cause there's a whole bunch of really deep primary cell biology interest in understanding these pathways.
1: It reminds me, there was a lot of press last spring with the emergence of of the brood tin cicadas. There was a a fungus there as well that had a sort of a negative impact on the cicadas, but positive for the fungus.
0: Yeah, and that was a fungus that was only described like a couple years ago. And actually a lot of people, I would say, that are very well known within the kind of community science project were really involved in getting some of the first samples together for the academic labs to study. And this is massaspora, is the name of the genus for this fungus. And it, I think they call it the salt pepper or salt shaker of death or something like that for uh, cicadas. So it basically eats up the entire butt of the cicada and the cicadas flying around, just dropping spores all over the place. And then it does this through using a lot of compounds that when you tell humans about it, they're like, whoa, why would you use that? It's it's some of the psychedelic components you find in magic mushrooms in there are in there, and also something that's very similar to a methamphetamine is in there. Oh, wow. And these are being used to manipulate the insects' nervous system. And this is, I think, what we're starting to see with fly death fungus and a lot of these other ones, where you've got major behavior changes taking uh, place in these insects. Just wild.
1: It really is. It just shows how to to use the corny Jurassic Park quote, life finds a way. Like the, <laughs> there's all these different strategies that exist to to perpetuate a given organism's
0: life. Yeah. And I think one thing that like a lot of people don't realize, especially like people in North America is, you know, we've, people, a lot of folks have seen like a National Geographic thing or like a David Attenborough thing about ants getting, you know, a fungal infection, like climbing up and having the fungus kind of bust out of their head and shoot all over the place. These kind of cordyceps fun- fungi, these ones that are really notorious for taking over insects but you don't have to go to the tropics to see those. If you go to the tropics, it's a lot easier to find those, but we have them all across North America if you just learn to look for them. So we've got ones taking over flies. We've got ones taking over cicadas. There's also ones that go after spiders. And so they're everywhere if you learn to look for them. Mm -hmm.
1: I I have to say, I know we're only partway through, but I'm I'm having lots of fun in this sort of meandering conversation. There's so many interesting side doors to go through. So another side door then yeah, I mentioned this bio blitz, and there yeah, I've always noticed there are a lot of different rusts on plants, and and very often, at least from the citizen science standpoint, they're typically fairly easy to identify because they're host specific or at least genus specific. So what's going on with rusts? Are these also parasitic, or is they're often growing on healthy plants?
0: Yep. A lot of rusts are parasitic and actually half the reason that they've been studied so well is because of that nature. So if you look at mycological science, at least in North America, it's really poorly represented in academia, except for when you get to crop diseases. And so rusts are these crop diseases we worry about all the time. So that's why they've been really well identified. Rusts, depending upon which one, can have really complex life cycles where they actually will have multiple different plants they have to move through in order to complete their life cycle. So it's not just like this fungus is going to grow on this plant's leaf and that's going to be it. And then it cycles back. Sometimes they'll have to cycle from two to three different plant hosts in order to complete their life cycle, which is kind of amazing. But also if you think about this from an evolutionary point of view, what it does is it gives them a safety net because they're not locked into a single host. So maybe something happens to a seasonal grass that this rust likes to grow in and the grass has not come up for a year. Instead of being bankrupt now and going out with that grass, not being around, it could maybe hold up in a, a woody plant for a couple of seasons until the, the grass populations recover. The rust are some really cool ones, especially if you get some macro lenses on them. Visually, some of them are really stunning up close.
1: Are there any in particular I should be looking for? you piqued my interest.
0: One of my favorites, and just because it comes up on, I'm going to butcher the Latin name, always called the ground sills all the time, these kind of urban weedy plants. There's one that shows up on the leaves there very frequently, at least in the springtime in California, that is just visually stunning. And You'll walk by a plant and you'll realize before you get to it, that it's got the rust because the whole plant will be kind of sloping down a little bit and then you'll notice you even see the orange at a distance uh, which is cool i don't remember the name of that one unfortunately and there is another one that occurs on coyote brush that's really cool the coyote brush i would say is one of these like really underappreciated plants in california mm-hmm. by people that aren't into plants because if you go to a bio, book, say. That is the plant, as soon as I see one i'm like i'm going to spend five minutes here and just go over the entire thing because you'll find tons of insects there. You'll find galls from the insects, and there's a lot of fungi that like to associate with it too and there's one of these rusts that the twigs will literally look like they're bursting with orange, and that's all of these spores being produced out from the rust fungi
1: Now that's one that that we did see yesterday. there were a lot of those. Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah, I will certainly be able to give a photo. I took some myself that will be in the show notes. Like when I look at my own backyard, for example, I see rusts on, we have some ornamental rose bushes. I'll see rust on that. How do the rusts then uh, transfer from plant to plant?
0: So it's, it's interesting because like rust can get around in a lot of different ways. They actually have relatively large spores. If you put them in the microscope and look like some of these are pretty big compared to some of the other fungi that are out there. If they're smaller, can get, can get blown around to the next place they need to go. But some will use vectors. Um, when I say vectors, a lot of times I'm talking about some sort of animal to get them from one place to another. Maybe there is a fly that's landing on the plant and getting the spores on them and then taking it off. In fact, there's one really incredible example that you can find in California that it's a rust that infects, I think it's a brassica if I remember right. And it makes the brassica look like a flower. And so outside of flowering season, all of a sudden this thing looks like it has a yellow flower at the top. But if you look at it, it's actually just a bunch of rust pustules more or less. So insects will land on it like it's a flower, get covered in the spores and then fly off with it and move the spores to the next host. And fungi have been really good at figuring out how to convince animals specifically to move their spores around. I think one of the most famous ones from a culinary point of view is of course the truffle. So truffles produce compounds that are very similar to pheromones that pigs can pick up on. They'll dig for them and then end up spreading the spores around. And you see a lot of rodents this time of year in California digging. Some of them are burying stuff, but a lot of them are actually digging up a lot of these hypogeous, so underground mushrooms, that produce smells that entice mammals to dig them up eat them, and then move the spores around, which is pretty cool. And if we look at some of the insects, there's some really cool pairings. Um, so unfortunately, in California, a lot of us are really vividly aware of what's going on with pine beetles um, in the Sierra Nevadas. So we've had the drought, which made a lot of our pine trees more susceptible to so pine beetles. If you look at their exoskeleton, they actually have little nodules in the exoskeleton, that perfectly fit the spore of a fungus that they have a really close relationship with. So the beetle will bore into, say, a new pine tree, and it will more or less bring the spores with with them into the tree. The spore will germinate in the tree and then start decaying the wood, which then gives the beetle easier access to a plant. And so if you go through and you're cutting these trees that have had pine beetle infections, you'll see that they've got this blue stain all throughout them, and that's from that fungus that the beetle is more or less carrying around in its head plate for the most part. So there's just a dizzying number of ways that mushrooms have convinced things to, to move them around, which is super, super cool.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And you start putting together all of these relationships, and then you think of all the compound relationships that exist.
0: A lot of times what we just about, was like mushrooms convincing things. Hey, come here, take me, move me. But sometimes they're also trying to tell things, hey, don't mess with me. Um, So some fungi will produce compounds then that keep things from messing with them. So like the whole group of mushrooms that people call magic mushrooms, the active compound in there we think is actually an anti-herbivory compound, which is basically don't eat me. (laughs) Like I'm trying to produce my spores and get them out in the world. Please don't mess with me. Um, There's a bunch of other fungi that will produce very bitter compounds for the same reason, which is pretty, pretty wild.
1: And then, of course, the taste or the impacts are going to be perceived differently by different animals or insects that are that are taking advantage of it, too.
0: Yep. And you can see that if you observe some of the fungi in the field and spend a little bit of time around them, you'll see specific types of insects coming to them versus other ones like in the same area, like a classic one in California. And we see this all over the world with the group that's known as the stinkhorns. But in California, we've got this one that's known as the cage stinkhorn. It literally comes up, it's the color of a rotting carcass and smells just like it. And so it's convincing flies to come to it in order to spread the spores. And nothing else really seems to come to this. And so if you watch it, it's all these kind of carrion flies that will show up and nobody else. You don't see slugs really attacking these very frequently or anything else. And so they have all these mechanisms to select for that vector that they want and try and keep everybody else from taking them down.
1: Yeah, I I keep pausing here a little bit because it's there's so many fun ways we can continue to go. And I'm I'm already thinking that I'll have to, if you would be willing, maybe even have a part two at some point, because I can already anticipate all of the questions and commentary i'm going to get like you know mike you didn't ask this one question you should have asked this other question (laughs) so yeah we
0: can do a follow-up at some time we are trying to cover like an entire you know kingdom and which is there's a whole bunch of variation within them and there's also i mean just for anybody that's listening there is i would say one of the best books for my college that i've read in years just came out within the past year which is the entangled life by shendrick i think think she's last name shendrick And it is just, it's phenomenal. It's a, it's the best, I would say, catch up on what's going on and all of these kind of leading edges of understanding the mycological universe. It's really well-written, easy to digest as somebody that's in the field and even somebody that's just starting the road into mycology.
1: That's great. Uh, I'll definitely look into that and link to it. And in fact, I know there's a big glaring hole that we have in our discussion about mycelium and soil health and the so-called wood wide web. I I just don't think we're going to get into that today.
0: That's fine. Yeah.
1: There is another really fascinating thing that I know that there's an interest in my audience about, and that's lichen. Can you tell me a bit about how fungi relate to lichen?
0: Yeah. So lichen is a really interesting, I guess some people would say organism, but really it's a community that we give the name like it's an organism. So traditionally we've always thought about lichens as being a, a fungus and some sort of photosymbiont working together. When I say photosymbiont, we're talking a cyanobacteria or an algal cell. But just within the last five years, that's been completely blown out of the water by this like 2016 paper, where a group realized that In a lot of cases, it's not just two organisms that are there. There's oftentimes a third of yeast that's there. And ever since 2016, as more and more people dig into this field, we're realizing that this thing that we call lichen is really a very dynamic community. It's not just two players. Sometimes it's not just three. Sometimes it's a whole bunch of them. And you can interchange some of the players and still have something that looks like the original lichen. Which is kind of wild. And just from a taxonomy point of view, usually most of the lichens that we see, like in North America, tend to be an ascomycete, some of these cup fungi associating with a photosymbiont. But occasionally, when you get down to the tropics, you'll even find some of the basidiomycetes acting as the fungal kind of host that makes more or less the home to hold everybody else. And so they're definitely a field that we've got decades worth of work to do to really figure out what's going on there. And from a naming point of view, I think it's also one of these ones that you just like grin at because we apply these names to things, but they're really a community. And I think this is actually wonderful in that even when we look at other organisms, even like say ourselves, we're not just ourselves, right? If you remove the microflora from a human, the human is no longer there. And so it really gets you into this kind of thought process about what is a species What is a community? How do we go about naming these things that actually represent the thing itself and the thing within its community?
1: And that's exactly where I was going to go. As humans, how many millions of of bacteria? I don't know if it's millions, but lots of bacteria, lots of other organisms that that we depend on and they depend on us. And yeah, we're a community and a species.
0: And I think most organisms, the more we dig into it, the more we see that. And I think the reason that's starting to take place is because we are we just within the last half a century developed the tools where we can start seeing all of those organisms that comprise the communities.
1: Maybe before we move on a little bit to the DNA sequencing and, and other DNA discoveries, which I know could be another hour if we wanted it to be, but we can at least hit some high points. What are some of the one or two of the biggest myths and unknowns that are top of your mind anyway, with respect to fungi and mushrooms?
0: I think one of the biggest ones, and this is just because for the most part, I've grown up in a culture that was predominantly mycophobic. I mean, that's like that wave is starting to shift now. But I remember growing up, people would be like, oh, don't touch that mushroom. It might be poisonous. Really, plants are a lot more scary if you talk about toxicity compared to most mushrooms. And even especially from like touching, there's a lot of plants that when you touch them, really bad things can happen pretty quickly. Where fungi, it's a really small number. In fact, there's only one known mushroom in the world that actually has any sort of contact dermatitis that then can lead to any major ailments. And that one is over in Japan. So for the most part, at least Western United States, based upon our habitat, we will probably never need to worry about this. And even within California, I would say there's only a handful of really deadly mushrooms, where when you talk about plants, there's a lot more deadly plants if you were to ingest them than there is mushrooms. On the other side of this kind of coin, see the mycophobia that now is being washed over by this health and wellness craze around fungi, which has been hard for me as a mycologist to deal with because people want to basically use mushrooms as a panacea topic. Like, oh, we need this mushroom will cure all of these things where, It's given them a lot of limelight, but at the same time, it's kind of mystified and downplayed actually some of the science of what's going on with these fungi in terms of useful compounds. And so I think anybody that's getting swept up in that, I always ask them to kind of stop and try and read some papers that actually speak to the science of these compounds that they're hoping to get from these fungi to have any sort of medicinal use. One of the big kind of myths that the mycological community, at least in California, struggles with a lot, and this gets to land management practices, is this idea that picking mushrooms um, actually hurts the organisms. And so if we get back to we think about the life cycle of fungi, right, the mushroom is just a really short portion of the life cycle. It's just the fruiting body. It's like the apple from an apple tree and picking the apple from the apple tree is not going to do anything you know, bad to the tree, unless you're like breaking branches in the process and things like that. And ultimately you're probably going to spread the seeds around. And from the long-term studies that we've seen in Europe and Switzerland, and then we have a long-term study that's up in Oregon where they studied plots of land where they let people pick and then plots of land where they didn't let people pick. And they looked at total biomass of fruiting bodies. They actually increased a lot of times in the places they were picked. And then, as long as land management practices were in place to keep people from trampling spaces, it seems like you didn't see a major change in the habitat uh, when it came to picking fungi. And that's one of the ones that's like in California. It's really interesting. There's all this hot debate about you know where can people go pick if they're interested in mushrooms. Because unfortunately, not we're fortunately unfortunately a lot of people get into studying mushrooms because they want to eat them. And it's a slippery slope. You see these people that start off. I'm just interested in edibles. And then they realize this wonderful diversity and then they become much more consumed with seeing the diversity instead of just what can I get from that organism, which is really interesting with fungi compared to birds and other things like that, where people get into them because of these things that aren't necessarily attached to their stomachs. Uh, Fungi is a very different field for that.
1: Actually, if I could ask you about picking and and thinking about how there are a lot of naturalists that listen to this podcast, if... I I understand to really get as close to a good identification of a mushroom, very often you do need to pick the mushroom so you can inspect it closely, Mm -hmm. and see some of the the field marks, see what the stem is like. So do the same rules hold true then for naturalists? Is it okay to to pick a sample to help you with an identification?
0: It, It depends upon where you're at. I've definitely gotten myself in trouble accidentally picking up a mushroom and splicing it in half one place. In order to look at attributes, I needed to identify the species. A ranger came upon me and was like, oh, give me your driver's license. I need to write you up. And I was like, what? I'm just trying to identify this. And it was like, oh, no, that's against the rules here. And so it's, it really varies from kind of land management in California. There's only a handful of places that you can actually go and collect mushrooms, like op- openly and legally. And so that's Salt Point, Point Reyes National Forest, and then the national forest systems all are like open for collection and things like that. But I think there's a lot of pressure on other management groups to reconsider that. But I think what's really going to change that tide is having some data from California. Because it's one thing to point at studies from Switzerland. Oregon's a little bit closer. But I think if we had some good data sets and areas where you had this practice taking place and this practice not taking place and seeing how does that change the ecologies, I think we would be able to make better decisions. And maybe it might not be picking. Maybe we do see there is a difference because of our slightly drier habitats compared to Oregon. But those are some of those studies I would like to see in order for us to make informed land management choices about picking
1: yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's one of these scenarios where I think a lot of us are familiar with parks that, that simply say no collecting, no picking, I, and they'll often focus a lot on wildflowers as an example because people will like to go and collect wildflowers to take home or whatever the case might be. But it, it can be, at least for me, the way my brain works, hard to remember that would translate to mushrooms as well. So it's a good reminder to to be aware of what the regulations are in the park that you're at.
0: Yeah. And it also speaks to the different biology of them, right? Picking flowers, you'd be picking something before it's had a chance to produce its way to reproduce. With the mushroom, usually by the time you get that full uh, mushroom body up, it's already producing spores. And having somebody actually pick it up, even just turn it over in your hands and look at it, you've all of a sudden just covered yourself. You've become one of those vectors. The mushroom, to some degree, got a little bit of what it wanted, and now you're spreading it around. So it's, and I think a lot of people don't, since they don't understand the life cycle of the mushroom, some of these land management practices have happened because of that, because we think about this as just, everything is don't touch. Mm-hmm. And that's the easiest way to manage it, which from a management point of view, you can get, right? It's easier to have that broad rule. Don't touch, don't disturb anything, leave it how it is.
1: Yep. Definitely easier to communicate that than a nuanced <laughs> circumstance.
0: Yeah. But it does bring up a really interesting thing about the way that people then interact with the land, because- some of these places that people are allowed to go picked, it is a lot easier to rally people around wanting to take care of that land. And I'm not sure if it's just because they've got this sort of deeper relationship with the land or what it is. But I feel like mycology communities have a pretty like strong sway about getting people excited about land protection because of these relationships.
1: All right. So we've been working up to this point throughout the discussion. At the beginning, you talked about some of your background in DNA and the convergence of your interest in mycology and DNA. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Like how do these two topics converge?
0: Right. So DNA sequencing has been a technology that's been developing for literally since the 70s, but it's really grown exponentially in the last, I'd say, 20 years. Uh, Ever since we finished the first draft of the human genome that I was uh, involved in. And so a lot of technologies that we use on the human genome projects, they've been around for a while now, have gotten just cheaper and cheaper like every year, which then has all of a sudden made these tools accessible to community scientists. So somebody that's not in a traditional academic setting can now get used to these molecular tools as a different lens to look at say fungal taxonomy with. And this is, really big, especially for Western United States, where a lot of the mushrooms we have were given Latinized names based upon what they looked like in Europe and looked similar here. But as soon as you do a little bit of microscopy and a little bit of molecular work, i.e. DNA sequencing, you realize that these are not the same organisms and the ones out here need a new name. And for the most part, it's community scientists, a lot of the times driving a lot of this, where it's starting to happen more and more as these tools become cheaper and cheaper. So the DNA sequencing that was used on the first draft of the human genome, which uh, was called Sanger sequencing, is something that for the most part, people working now on sequencing more human genomes and stuff like that, have left in the dust, which has been great because it's made it cheaper for the community scientists to access it. And when I say from a price point of view, accessible, we're talking to start a home lab in order to get into this. You're looking at somewhere between $800 and $1,500. Still a big price tag to get started for a lot of folks. But once you've got that, you're looking at somewhere between 5 to $10 to be able to generate DNA sequences of an organism that you're interested in. And so the cool thing is you could do this with mushrooms, but you could literally do this with any sort of organism that you're interested in. You could extract the DNA, amplify it using a technique known as the polymerase chain reaction or PCR, be able to confirm that took place. You got the amplification that took place and then send this out and then be able to get sequence back for it. And that all of a sudden allows you this different lens than just looking at the physiological structures of the thing and trying to determine what it is. Because now we can use statistics and compare this to other sequences to figure out kind of evolutionary relationships of these organisms to each other. And that's, you know, besides being able to say, Hey, this is a new species. I would say that is the other really big benefit of this is it helps us draw these evolutionary lines between things, which haven't always been clear. So one great example of this is the Belich family. So bolets typically are these mushrooms that have these kind of like spore pad, spore pad bottoms on them. A famous one in that group is the Porcini or boletus edulis. But there are some bolets that don't have spore pads on the bottom. Phylo- oh, I'm going to butcher the name of it. But there is the one that's called the gild beletes that we can find um, in California. And it's got gills. But if you look at it from a molecular point of view, it's much closer more closely related to these things with the spore pad bottoms than it is with anything with a gill. And so these molecular lenses allow us to see these relationships in ways that we would have missed if we were just looking at just gross morphology, which is super, super cool. These technologies that' maturing or are changing really quickly. So Sanger sequencing is the technique that's been used for about two decades now but there's a lot of emerging technologies that I think will move their way into the community science space with the next five to 10 years. The one that I'm most excited about are nanopore sequencers. So the singer sequencing relied upon some of the instruments that are like $300,000, dollars And that's why you're sending out your PCR reaction to finish getting the sequencing. Uh, these nanopore sequencers are not inexpensive yet. You're still looking at $500 to $1,000 per run, which is out of my price range and out of most community science ranges at this point. But the exciting thing is some of these are the size of a USB drive. So you could literally be doing this in the middle of the Amazon, things like that. People are starting to do this in academia, and this will slowly make its way, I think, into community science over the next five to 10 years as the prices start to fall. And that's going to do two major things. A, we'll get many more people looking through the molecular lens at how these fungal relationships are existing and we'll be able to sequence larger portions of these organisms because right now for the most part when people do sequencing they're looking at really small fraction of these genomes in order to do the comparisons and so just kind of put some numbers on it usually we're looking at sequences that are a thousand base pairs or less And some of these genomes are enormous. They could be a billion bases. So you're literally just looking at a small piece. So doing relationships and statistics with them, we're getting a pretty good view of what's going on because we've chosen these areas to look at based upon them being things that are good for telling things apart. But if we're able to look at the whole genomes, we'll get much bigger pictures of what's taking place. Um, And so I'm really excited to see that change probably in the next five to 10 years.
1: So for anyone who's interested in digging into this, if they do have the budget to look into some of the more expensive technologies or even some of the, I guess they're they're, they're all a little bit pricey, but some of the less expensive ones, where, where would you point people at?
0: If you're doing this for fungi, there's actually quite a few folks now that have really good talks online about how to do this. Um, and so if you type in citizen science usually fungal sequencing into youtube you'll find talks by alan rockefeller seagrid back east i think i've done a couple for a couple of mycological societies too that walk you through all the different kind of variations of how you might go about doing this and so there's a really robust community developing online around all of these tools which is fantastic
1: i'll uh, i'll try to find a few and if you don't mind i'll bounce them off you to see if they're good ones yeah um, this is really fascinating and yeah I was thinking about some other interesting areas like galls people listening to the show a while know that I've gotten into galls quite a bit and the fact that the spring cycle and fall cycle can look very different but be the same species and there's all these different unknowns about those relationships yet to be discovered and it sounds like some of this DNA sequencing technology might help amateurs start to to piece it together a little bit
0: It, it definitely would and the beauty about galls is a lot of the starting information we would need in order for a community scientist to really run with this or are already there. Like we know how what primers are needed to set up PCR reactions and things like that. And that's the cool thing about sequencing is it gets you out of having to worry about what does this thing look like, um, and you can look at the organism at different points in its life and still realize it's the same thing, which is super super cool. Mm-hmm. And especially for like organisms that maybe you don't see them get big ever. So a lot of like fungi, what's going on in academia right now, there's people digging into soils and then just doing sequencing and asking what's here. And we're seeing all these things that we couldn't see because they don't make fruiting bodies, or maybe they only make fruiting bodies once every 10 years with really special conditions. And all of a sudden we're able to see them because of this tool set.
1: In the category of citizen science and the amateur community, what other, you what are some of the other big opportunities that citizen scientists have to contribute to mycology?
0: I think one of the biggest places is one of the places everybody starts with a lot of organisms is just observing them, but then taking it one step further and observing and then documenting them into places where people can figure out when and where these things are fruiting. So the use of iNaturalist or Mushroom Observer to document these organisms where you saw it, when you saw it, so that other people can combine this information. And the reason that's really helpful is that, especially with fungi, you're getting one chance during an entire season to even realize that this organism is there. And so if we were relying upon graduate students to find this, it's a really low number of people to see these things. But if you have a lot of people that are interested in these organisms going out and documenting them with their cell phones and putting them on these community science project platforms, they all of a sudden... Are generating these you know, species biogeography maps that we wouldn't have got any other way. And it's been really interesting in the last couple of years, there's been a couple of focused efforts to go after what we thought were rare species by getting funneling people towards iNaturalist and saying please try to observe this. And what we've realized is that with some of these things they might not actually be rare. <laughs> it was just because they weren't well documented, but you get enough people jazzed about going out trying to find them and damn, all of a sudden there it is. And then that's usually where people could say cut their teeth in mycology you get used to finding mushrooms which is a whole thing into itself learning to read a landscape of where a mushroom might be and then be able to actually discover it there fruiting documenting it so learning what attributes you need to photograph in order for somebody to be able to maybe give this a species name and say the second level then is to then take those organisms and start doing microscopy on them so a lot of fungal taxonomy also rests highly upon what do specialized cells look like and what do the spores look like and so usually I'd say level two for most mycologists is getting into microscopy which is like a whole world in of to itself and I would say level three then is bringing in that those molecular tools and doing the DNA sequencing and so far I've talked about mainly like, very taxonomy-focused pieces of mycology. And I would say there's an entire other branch out there, which is cultivation. So learning how to take some of these wild species and then bring them into a way that we can actually grow them and then study them. And this is really important because people that are trying to use fungi in applications, so it might be things like microremediation or building soils, things like this, you really need to figure out how to grow things that are hopefully local and use local species to then help facilitate local processes. And then from like a biology cell and biology point of view, there's also a lot of novel compounds in these organisms that we're just like literally hitting the tip of the iceberg right now. And so being able to grow them is going to allow us to isolate and purify these compounds in order to be able to study them as well.
1: So when you talk about microscopy, what kind of power do you need to at least make some inroads as an amateur?
0: Usually, you're gonna need somewhere between 400 and 1000x magnification for the microscopy that you're doing to really make inroads, because that's gonna allow you to measure the size of the cells that are used for figuring out taxonomy. Which means that if you're doing that 1000x, you're gonna to have to get a little bit of skill under your belt. If you're gonna to have to use what we call emergent oil, in order to get that magnification. And so a little bit of training is usually needed. It's not just like, oh, I bought a microscope and I'm gonna just do this today. It's it's gonna be an investment of a couple of days of playing around and figuring out how to use it. The beauty is now that there's a lot of YouTubes around just doing fungal microscopy out there online. So I know Alan Rockefeller has a couple of good ones out there and there's a couple of like step-throughs online by Microweb and things like that. So if you're interested in that, it's easy to find resources to learn. And it's a whole world into itself. When you get under the microscope, and I've definitely f- fallen into this before, I'm like, I'm just going to look at this one thing, <laughs> it's eight o'clock at night. And then I look up and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's 1 a.m. What am I doing? And by the same time, you get stuck there because there's so many kind of cool things you start seeing when you're at those levels.
1: And this is a topic that I, I can say, at least for me personally, I'm scared of, not because of the learning curve but because there are so many doors that are going to get opened <laughs> by it. <laughs>
0: it's and, so, yeah. true.
1: so any other suggestions for naturalists looking to make their first steps into this world?
0: Um, I think learning to read the landscape is the thing I've learned most about getting into mushrooms, the thing I've appreciated most, and is also, I would say, one of the First place is I, if I was beginning this all over again, I would want to start. And a big portion of this comes down to just a handful of factors, especially in California. It's a little unique because we have a kind of a slightly dry habitat. So learning to read where underground water might be is really helpful for finding a lot of fungi. Going into ravines and being able to read, okay, the water's probably coming down this side. So that's where I'm going to spend my time looking for fruiting bodies and things like that. And then the other portion of it is just the seasonality that we talked about before. And that's one of those things that takes a little bit longer to develop because it means you've got to put a couple, sometimes years under your belt, hiking trails, and then just getting a feel for the seasonality of things where you live. But that's also one of the most rewarding things, too, is like knowing like, oh, I just saw this weather pattern. Oh, I'm going to go out this weekend because I know I have a potential to see this organism. It's only going to be up for this week and then it's gone for a year. It really gives you a whole different appreciation of the ecology around you when you realize that some things are just so ephemeral. It's like wildflowers can be like that. Some wildflowers are just up for a little bit of time. You're like, oh, I missed it. Oh, no, I got to wait till next mm-hmm. year. And you get that same sort of feel with mushrooms too.
1: Then there's also the really positive feedback where you make that connection. Now is the time to go find it. Or at least you have an inkling that now's the time to go find it. And then you actually do. And it's wow. Like that sort of puts it all together. Like I'm starting to learn some things here.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then it's kind of fun with some of them too because some of the mycorrhizal fungi, it's not only, oh, I know this is the right time, but like I know I can go to this specific tree and I can probably expect to see that mushroom come up again, which has like a whole nother feel to it too. Because you're not just seeing that organism. You're seeing this kind of whole ecological landscape working together to allow certain organisms to get to their reproductive cycles, which is super cool.
1: Mm -hmm. So, Damon, this has been a really fascinating discussion, Uh, a tip of the iceberg or fruiting body of the mushroom, or I don't know what the right pun would be. But yeah, there's a few questions I like to ask my guests to wrap things up, because I find that people like yourself have a really interesting perspective of the world, And in in particular, I am interested in what your interest in nature has taught you about living life.
0: I mean, I think the biggest thing, and it just expands every year, is kind of humility and wonder. Because the more I go out there and I try to, the more I'm aware of the things I could see, the more I become aware of how much I don't know. And that it's funny because at one point you were like, oh my God, I'll never know it all. But at the same time, it just expands that desire to go out and see stuff. And so it's this kind of just this wonderful feeling of there's so much out there I could learn and I don't have to go far. I don't have to go to the tropics or someplace magical. I can literally go to my backyard and see it change if I just learn to look. And I think that's what nature has taught me the most is to take time to observe little tiny changes and that could be tiny changes in the natural world around me and it could also be even changes within myself and to recognize that those are there. And that's not always easy to do, especially with the world that we live in where everything's very fast paced, everything's asking for your time, to carve out that time to go look and think about what's going on really enlightens at least my life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I and I, I was having flashbacks as you were talking about that to the early days of the pandemic and how so many people for perhaps the first time in, in years or the first time in their lives started to make that connection, developing a practice of walking or hiking or checking their backyard on a daily basis and starting to see those things. So I hope we can all retain that as, uh, as hopefully the world goes back to normal. Hopefully that's one part that doesn't go back to normal, that people can retain that connection that, that started to grow.
0: I I hope so because I think I was already a student of that prior to the pandemic, but I felt that take off so much more during the pandemic just because it was easier for me to carve out time to do that. And I started to see deeper and deeper into those cycles right around me because we could carve out the time to do it.
1: And if you could magically impart one ecological concept to help the public see the world like you see it, what would that be?
0: I mean, it's going to sound super corny, right? But to get people to understand how interconnected all things are, biological and abiotic things. And it's one of those things because I think a lot of people just don't realize how their actions affect everything around them. And especially when it just comes to local ecology, choices we make every day are having impacts locally and globally on organisms. And ultimately, it comes back and affects us. We're not outside of these systems. But I think that's a, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to recognize, but I think some of these practices we just talked about that people started developing during the pandemic, those are the tip of the iceberg for people realizing that. Because as they see those cycles change, they can see how this interaction here changed the way that something else over here took place, and they start to see that interconnectedness. So I hope these are things that continue to grow within people that have taken this time.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like maybe you started to answer uh, what my next question is is going to ask, and that's, what have you found really to be most effective in helping people move up a rung in their environmental awareness?
0: I think the biggest one is getting people out into their local habitats, right, and introducing them to the organisms around them, and helping them see those relationships between the organisms and then ultimately themselves. And to some degree, this sounds like the corny thing that everybody's going to tell you, and people envision, like, oh, you're going out and like, you know, showing them a bird, and people are having this, oh, I, I like, I, I have some major connection to, to visually seeing this thing. But ironically, maybe this is because I've worked in with psychology a lot, is I find that going out and seeing is great, but technology has taken over so much of our seeing and hearing that really, when I take people out, I find what really helps them get a connection is using those other senses. And so if I can get somebody to smell something, I can get somebody to taste something, it has this longer impact emotionally with them. And if I talk to them again, like that's usually what they'll reference. And so when I go out, I'm trying to introduce them to an organism and then get that to stick in their long-term memory. So smell and taste is great for doing this. But then the long-term hope is that they then, because they care about and understand the organisms around them, They start wondering about how their actions actually impact those things around them.
1: So I haven't had a guest say that yet. That's really fascinating to me because there's so much research about how long-term memories are formed tying into a multi-sensory sort of input. And I've never heard it put quite the way you just put it, especially in terms of of going out and showing people nature. Because like I do see, to your point, I do see a lot of people, Trying to show a bird, but that's easier said than done. You think birds are everywhere; this will be easy, but ninety percent of the time they're far away, or they're moving, or, or obscured by a, a bush. And if if someone's not very good with binoculars, they're not going to see it. But mm-hmm. but you have all these other things out there, like the mushrooms, or like uh, a plant gall, or rust on a coyote brush, or whatever the case might be. Not that you want to taste those necessarily, but <laughs> yeah,
0: you could. They're better. I'm just going to put it out there. But it's I know it's it's interesting because as humans. Like half of our brain capacity is for processing visual information, right? But that's also why a lot of the tech we work with, it's very visual and audio, right? It's going after that chunk that we already use a lot of. But all of that gets highly processed in the brain. It goes through the thalamus. Where things like scent, it gets to jump past it. It doesn't go through that filter. And so we know that from a neurology point of view for humans, scent is a thing that really is tied well to long-term memory. And that's why, I, especially like this time of year, right Christmas time, people go places, they smell things. oh, that reminds me of my family getting together, and that's why I like to lean upon those other senses when I take people out because I think it it rounds out that whole emotion that then ultimately leads into like long term memory and hopefully into caring, right about that space about those organisms
1: and not to springboard too much off of what you said, but literally last week, I was at a conference, and there was a presentation about how to integrate senses into video presentations for this very same reason. And there were a lot of really interesting tools that were discussed about how if you plan your presentation in advance, you can find analogs that people can grab at home. Something maybe tastes a little bit like pepper or smells a little bit like cinnamon or, or whatever. So you can have your participants go collect these things in advance and, and integrate that into the presentation to help build those long-term memories beyond just sort of the boring presentation. So I haven't tried it yet myself, but I thought it sounded like an interesting way to do exactly what you're talking about in the virtual world.
0: And it's interesting because I I think that really helps round out people pulling that into their long-term memory because we know that you need kind of emotional stuff in order to really get good long-term memory formation. And so being able to find ways that visual and audio can kind of tap into, or at least the fringe on those other ones really helps. Uh, I know with like mushrooms, a lot of time, a good portion of identification is smells. And it's really interesting talking to a bunch of my colleagues about smells, because once we start talking, you'll see a bunch of people start moving their mouths because even just talking about it, the language gets them to process that past memory of the smell. And you can see people's like mouths moving. You're like, I know what's going on in there. (laughs)
1: That's really interesting. You seem to always have a lot going on. I'm curious about what other upcoming projects you might have, any presentations, any any things you want to point people at that's on your short-term radar.
0: I've got kind of two things on the short-term radar. I'm going to be going to Soma Camp for the first time this year, which is this kind of well-known mycological get-together on the Sonoma Coast. And There's somebody from Davis that reached out to me this past year about carbohydrate sequencing, which is like this new technology that this guy actually developed as his PhD. And he was like, I'm really interested in this in fungi. We're mainly studying this in food. He's like, I'm really interested in fungi. So I heard that you might have an herbarium that I could get access to or a fungarium. And I was like, well, actually, yeah, I do. And so I picked stuff through as much of the taxonomy as I had at in hand at home and sent it over to him. And so he's been processing that data and we're going to release that at this meeting, which would be fun. And then maybe open this up as a community science project. if We can find a way to make this an easy pipeline. And then the other one that is kind of, I can't wait to get back at it is I was running a program called Barcode the Lake um, for Lake Merritt in Oakland and due to some issues with the city and then the pandemic, things that kind of slowed down. But ultimately, this was an opportunity for anybody in Oakland to come in, find an organism at Lake Merritt, and then we would do this molecular work on it and try and do DNA sequencing to basically have an archive of what is at Lake Merritt, but with a molecular lens. And so we'd only really processed a handful of samples before things shut down. And so I'm excited to get that kickstarted again.
1: And Lake Merritt's such an interesting place to begin with, too. It really is. So if people want to follow your work or get updates on some of these projects, where can they go?
0: California Center for Natural History is a kind of nonprofit group that I do a lot of my naturalist work underneath. And so you can easily look them up online. Otherwise, just at Damon Ty on iNaturalist or Instagram are probably the easiest ways to keep up with what I'm seeing or what projects I'm working on.
1: And Ty is spelled T-I-G-H-E. So, yeah, and I I do definitely recommend if, if you're a naturalist to follow both of those, because you're a great photographer among other things. And then the things that you find and your experience really shine through in both of those platforms. All right. So this really has been my, my head is spinning a bit from all the things that we touched on, (laughs) but it was a ton of fun. And I thank you for spending the extra time to cover everything today.
0: Yeah, you got it.
1: Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know, did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work, so please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support, so check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.